0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Coming to you from a little sweaty corner of a closet in Koh Phayam in Thailand. Uh, you got to get creative when you're on the road coming up with office space. Mm-hmm. And I say sweaty because I can't turn the fan on. Otherwise, there would be some really annoying background noise. So no complaints. Uh really glad to be in interesting places. We arrived in Kopayam, I guess a little over a week ago now. I recorded the last episode of my podcast from here, although I didn't do anything but read you something I wrote. So uh, I guess nobody knew I was here. I didn't offer any commentary, which was um, intentional and on purpose. Uh, Thank you to those of you who sent feedback from the last episode. That was a really fun project to create, to write, to record. Um, I really enjoy reading aloud. It was nice to not really have to think about what I was saying as I was saying it because I wrote it beforehand. Um, whereas in these intros and stuff, I'm, you know, both talking and thinking simultaneously, I guess. Um, But yeah, thank you for those of you that send feedback. I love hearing feedback from all of you, by the way, uh, whether it's on Instagram or an email. It's really nice to connect with all of you and hear how these episodes land, uh, whether they're conversations with other people or solo episodes. Um, To me, this podcast is my art project, really, and it was really freeing for me. I think growing up, I never really felt like I could call myself an artist Quote unquote, and I still feel kind of weird saying that. Um, But because I wasn't, you know, making paintings or building something with my hands, something physical and tangible uh, that I, you know, or playing an instrument, um, I felt like I couldn't do art. And I uh, sort of intentionally and purposely tried to do away with that false narrative and that limiting belief. And it's been really fun to kind of channel my creative energy of which I think I have, um, into this podcast. So yeah, it's just as as it is nice to have someone buy your artwork or put it up in a gallery or, you know, have someone listen to your music. I feel that way about this project and it would not really exist in the same way that it does without all of you. I feel an immense connection to each of you and, think about each of you, even though I don't know all of you. I know a fair bit of you through Patreon. Um, But uh, yeah, it feels very collaborative in a way. And I feel a sense of responsibility in bringing you something that I am proud of and that's meaningful to me, but also that will hopefully be meaningful to you. Today, I am bringing you a conversation with my grandmother. Uh, This is my dad's mom. So for those of you that have been listening to the show for a little while, you know that my dad has been on the show twice. Um, If you want to go back and listen, the episodes are episode 21 was the first one that we did and then he came back on for episode 73 and I love those episodes with my dad. I I think they are some of the most downloaded (laughs) episodes of my podcast actually, which is really interesting. Um, it feels a little bit self-indulgent sometimes to do episodes with family members, but the ones that I've done with my family members have by far been some of the most downloaded and some of the most um, appreciated, at least as far as your feedback goes. So I'm going to try to just get over the weirdness of how it feels and, and keep doing it. Um, if If anything, not to bring you more information about me and my family, but maybe to kind of model these sorts of discussions and encourage all of you to also have these sorts of discussions with your family. Um, They've been super helpful to me, of course, not that I'm not having conversations with my family off the mic, uh, but it certainly lends a different flavor to the conversation uh, when you really sit down with genuine curiosity and um, ask questions and interview them in a non-awkward way, interview is such a weird word or concept, but I think you guys know what I mean. Um, So yeah, so this is my dad's mom and uh, it's super interesting. It's super interesting to think about her life and what she was working through and my dad's life and what he's working through and then me and across the the board, right? Not just with my dad, but also with my mother. And something that I wanted to mention before we get into the conversation that I thought about again in listening back to this is something that I've mentioned before on the show that I think there's this interesting thing that occurs in um, our psyches. And I think this is a pretty universal experience, which is that when we think about our parents and our grandparents and their grandparents, we, most of us at least have this acknowledgement that for the most part, our lives are a good bit easier Um, in a multitude of ways. We have more access to things. We have the availability to explore ourselves or explore our interests. Um, Things are a bit more progressive with every generation. And so there are more opportunities, I think, within within each generation to learn more about ourselves and um, to gain insights about our ancestry and our heritage and you know, especially the younger generations. I think we're all very hungry and curious about where we came from. In for many reasons, but one of which is, I think, to sort of ultimately ask ourselves the question of like, why are we here, and what can we do productively in this time? And I think this thing could happen, and it certainly happened to me. And I, I've heard it reflected uh, from a lot of my friends, which is, we think about how much more difficult our parents had it and maybe not just our parents, right? Like people who are less privileged than us in general, people who we aren't related to, but we look out at the world and we say, fuck, like, you know, like these are quote white people problems or, or whatever it is we want to call it. Like our, our problems do not compare to the problems of others. And, I think that's a good start. I think it's good to acknowledge that. But I think the danger in that is what we can sometimes do is be like, because someone else has it way worse, because my parents had it worse, because my mom had it worse, I don't really have a right or I'm like a selfish, greedy bitch for feeling grief or feeling loss or feeling sadness or feeling like something's difficult or hard. And then we, so we compare ourselves to other people and I think it's a genuine intention. I think what we're trying to do is be empathetic. I think what we're trying to do is like move away from some sort of like narcissistic process. And I think that's important, but it's only half of what needs to happen (laughs) because strangely, I think if we go too far in that direction, it turns into self-deprecation and martyrdom. And it's not helpful, right? So like, let's say you have a ton of privilege that someone else doesn't have. You have more access to therapy. You have more access to money. You have more access to whatever it is that's going to lead you toward greater self-actualization. What favor are you doing that other person By not taking those resources and using them to then be generous and give it to them, right? So put your money into something that ends up giving something back to somebody. What good is it if you just wallow in your privilege? Like, it's not even a little bit helpful. And I think kind of the opposite of helpful. I think that's what's selfish, is to not look at the opportunities that we have, to not look back through the generations and say like, wow, fuck, okay, it seems like the trauma was reduced enough and the opportunity was increased enough to actually allow me to face this. So instead of seeing it as not as bad, You can see it as not as bad and therefore an invitation to do something about it. Like there's no doubt that it was more difficult for my mother and my grandmothers to truly, let's say, become the people they really wanted to be. Although I think you'll hear in this conversation that my grandmother did a very good job, but certainly her mother had a harder time and her mother before her. Um, Women had, especially women, had a lot fewer opportunities to do what they wanted to do in life and and also they often had so much more trauma i mean when i think about the stories of my family especially on my mother's side immigrating to the us i was just reading about this recently what happened in the town in in russia where my family is from and like 1500 jews were killed in the course of 4 hours <laughs> um and my family left and came to America because they didn't want to be mass murdered in a violent massacre in the middle of a town, right? Like the trauma was so fucking intense. Like there was no time or opportunity to like go to therapy or get a past life regression to like learn about yourself and what your soul's journey was, um, or process any kind of grief or trauma. Uh, there was too much trauma and there was not enough access or time or space to allow anybody to really face that stuff. And so I look at my life and I think, sure, like I had some trauma too. And it took me a long time to really take ownership over that and responsibility for dealing with it um, and really see it as for what it was. Like it was, there were traumas, even though they were not as bad as being massacred in a town in Russia Amongst, you know, women and children, it was still trauma. And yet, it was not as much. And because of the time in which I was raised because of the privilege, privileges that I received. I was able to work through those things. And even if I don't want to have children myself, I can hopefully pass on some of that learning and give back in the form of building a community space one day or having this podcast and helping someone else move through these things. Um, I can do something differently and change the course. And I know that that can sound like oh, we're here to save the world or like it's my responsibility to, you know, heal generations of my family. I know that can sound a little bit like robust and grandiose. And I think it can be. I think it it is a fine line, of course. Um, but if you truly commit to doing the work honestly and intentionally and from a place of authenticity and alignment and great discernment, I think it If you have that capability and you're not doing it, that that's a disservice. And it's a really, really beautiful thing to to think about where I came from as far as my heritage and my ancestry and think about my mother's life and my father's life and my grandmother's lives and my grandfather's lives and great-grandfather's and great-grandmother's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and see that I'm a part of something like we're so starved for connection these days. And I think we go out and try to find it in all the wrong places, like identitarian politics or something. Um, And, and yet I think our connection and our belonging is right here, which doesn't mean that you felt that way growing up. I certainly did not feel like I belonged. I felt like I was an alien in a fucked up world and I didn't like it here. I didn't like any part of it. I didn't really relate to people. I didn't have enough people in my life to relate to. I didn't have any mentors. None of it made sense and I hated everything and I was really fucking angry. But in moving through all that stuff and processing that stuff, I could kind of take a step back and look at something more objectively and see how I fit in. Even if you didn't have a good relationship growing up with a parent You fit in somewhere. You're a part of something. There is a lineage of some kind and you are at a point in it. And I think that can be said individually in each of our own lives. And I also think it can be said collectively. Um, I'm writing something about this now, so I don't want to disclose too much about it. (laughs) Um, But I think about this in the in the realm of, of generations too. We sort of look at a generation and we think like, well, it's just like a random category of people like grouped together in an arbitrary way. Mm -hmm. And in some cases that may be true, but what is the greater lineage as a generation that we slip into, right? Like I've had these podcasts, I brought you these conversations on the show about the astrological significance of the millennial generation and also of a a couple generations before the millennials and after Um, One with Jenny Kellogg, uh, that was the most recent one that talked about multiple generations. And, you know, we can look at a generation as a sort of arbitrary group of people or as, you know, I'm sure many of you who are millennials experience some degree of like shame and embarrassment. About growing up as a millennial, because we were shamed all the time for existing uh, in ways I think none of us really fucking understood because we were like children. Um, and th- to me, what what happened for me with that is that I tried my best to escape my age and escape my generation and just like want to have kids already or pretend that I was older. and I wanted to run away from it as much as I could. And I did this in my own personal life. Like I wanted to run away from the difficulties that I had with my mother. I wanted to disassociate and I didn't want to be compared or related or like I needed to run away. And I I think in a lot of ways that was an important process, but like all things in the process of correcting, we tend to (laughs) overcorrect. Um, and so as it relates to me feeling like a part of a, a family or a heritage, but also me feeling like I was a part of a generation, once I've processed the crap, I can sort of come back and complete the loop in a way that I can find meaning and value. And so now, obviously, I decided to start a podcast with the word millennial in the title, despite my embarrassment and my shame which still exists, by the way. I don't like telling people what the name of my podcast is. Um, But I thought it was really important to reclaim it. And I thought it was really important to reclaim my place in my family. And it's okay if we didn't get along with people. It's okay if we were estranged from people. It's okay if we still don't relate to people. Um, But we have the opportunity and the privilege and the gift of facing these things And using the space and the time and the education and the intelligence and just the state of the world, we have a lot more support now to do this work. It's a big reason I started this podcast is because when I started going through my own dark night of the soul and trying to figure out who I really was, I didn't feel like there was anywhere near the level of support that we needed. I did find some, and I think there's even more now than there was five years ago, Um, but I really wanted to play a role in that, and I'm really grateful to be playing a role in that for other people. So all that to say, I think guilt is a waste of time, and yes, acknowledge your privilege. Yes, acknowledge your opportunities. Yes, acknowledge that you have more of them, likely, than your parents did. Or the person living in the next town over. But that the only rightful, meaningful thing to do with that privilege and opportunity is to fucking use it. And to give it back to someone. Or to people. Or to a community. Do whatever you gotta do. (laughs) Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Um... Yeah, this is an interesting conversation to have and I'm excited to bring it to you. If you would like to support the podcast and meet like-minded people, we have a uh, really amazing Patreon community. Patreon is a site where you can support projects that are meaningful to you uh, with people who are creating them that have a hard time making money, so mostly artists and musicians and Um, writers and all the things that so many people like to do, but which our patriarchal capitalist society does not necessarily value as much. Um, So I have a Patreon and um, we have some people in there who donate a small amount of money per month. And I do want to reiterate because I think this sometimes gets lost in translation a little bit, but You know, with the Patreon, I offer perks. So we have this Discord server and I do a book club and I host workshops and I provide extra value for people who donate to the podcast. But for those of you who donate, as a reminder, or for those who are considering donating, I want to clarify that I feel like what, the, what I'd like the Patreon to really be is that you're actually donating to this project alone, the podcast, and that you would donate to the podcast whether there were perks or not. If you haven't noticed, I don't have ads and I will never have ads. It doesn't feel good to me. And I didn't start this project as like a monetary project or a marketing project, I started this project because I really wanted to do it, and I wanted to keep it authentic, especially after having a food blog and doing lots of sponsored posts and really hating my life and losing interest in the project. I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, However, the fact of the matter is this is what I do for work, and so I'm sort of stuck in this weird place where I don't want to make money in the standard way. But also I live in this world and I need to eat and I need to clothe myself. And I mean, actually, I don't really care about clothing myself. I think that's more society's request. Um, but I need to survive in this world and doing that requires money. And, and, and ultimately, what makes me feel good about the money that is donated to this to this project is that I have a project that I'm creating that I know will ultimately give back and complete that loop. So you guys are giving me money for this project, but the way that I'm able to give back is through the community itself. At the moment, it's a remote community. We have a message board via Discord. Um, and like I said, we have workshops and book clubs, et cetera. So there's lots of opportunities for people to meet each other remotely. However, I have land in Colorado, and unless the U.S. descends into fascism in the very, very near future, the plan is to build a space, to build a home for me, um, but also to have spaces for all of you to come and to work and to help and to meet each other and maybe to buy some land yourself. Um, but I imagine lots of people coming in and out and doing different things, you know, gardening and taking care of the land and taking care of animals and... uh helping us design different houses and coming up with new ways to work with the land regeneratively and hosting workshops and learning from people who are hosting workshops and hosting a workshop yourself or cooking, right? This is the space I want to create. And so the money that you donate is for the value of this project. And as a bonus, you get some perks via Patreon, but really, really as a bonus that money, I promise you, will circle back to you if you'd like to participate in the community, of course. Um, And so that's what this is. This is not a money-making endeavor for me. This is a way for me to figure out how to exist in this awkward world where we make money and we don't act reciprocally. So trade is no longer a thing. I would much prefer that to be honest. Um, But that isn't where we're at. And so that sucks and it's never going to feel good. And as many ways as I've tried to figure out how to make money feel good or like some sort of like fucking spiritual abundance, it doesn't. It doesn't feel good. It's a sort of abstract fractal of abundance and resources archetypally, in my opinion. Um, So this whole project and what I plan to do with my life is a way to deal with the awkwardness of money, but ultimately, hopefully turn it into something meaningful for those of you who have supported me now. So thank you for supporting me now. If you do, thank you for supporting me. If you do in the future and i promise to i hope to be supporting you now to be honest i hope this for this podcast and the patreon community is supportive but i w- i do want to do more and i do want to turn around and give back more and i feel responsible in that way and you know i think to some extent even though it sounds weird all relationships are transactional or at least energetic exchanges and some sometimes the energy flows in one direction to one person in sort of a different direction from the other person. And sometimes one person has fallen on hard times and needs some more generosity. And then sometimes that person's doing very well and then can give that generosity back. So that's how I try to approach money. That's how I try to approach this podcast and the Patreon community. And I'm really grateful for those of you who have invested in it in all of these meaningful ways and have made me really feel like I belong to a generation and to a group and to a family. So thank you. I am <clears throat> going to play you in what am I gonna play today? Um, I have to check my playlist. By the way, there is a playlist of all the songs that I've played on the podcast. If you go to Spotify and search A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, you'll find the podcast, but you'll also find a playlist. um, And every song I've ever played, there's 182 of them in there now. Uh, So you can follow that. It's a public playlist. I have some other playlists as well if you enjoy the music that I play. I also have a bunch of private playlists that I um, send out to my patrons. So that's one of the uh, perks that I offer. I'm going to play you in with a song called Good Woman by the Staves. And this song really struck me and, and again, sort of made me think of where I came from and the opportunities that I had and my mother had and my grandmother had and the sort of struggles of wanting to be a good woman. And what does that mean? And what opportunities do we have to do that? And what opportunities do we not have to do that? Or what are we told is good versus what we feel is good? So I thought that would be a good song to play today. If you would like to support me on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Anya Um, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. I do have an idea that I haven't shared yet, but something that I plan to offer to the Patreon community In the coming year that I'm really excited about. So more info on that. Um, Also, there's still time to join our book club for this winter. We're going to, we're reading Memories, Dreams, and Reflections by Carl Jung, and we're going to meet at the beginning of February to discuss that. So definitely enough time to still read it if you want to join Patreon and get involved. All right. Sending you all love in this crazy fucked up time. I... Hope you're all keeping your head at least somewhat above water and if not giving yourself forgiveness and grace for freaking the fuck out because what else are we supposed to do right now? (laughs) Enjoy the song and the conversation and I will catch you on the other side.
1: Well, you say what you want and you never go back. My song is a song, even buried in the black. Well, I cover my mouth and I straighten my back. Well, I cover my mouth and I straighten my back. I'm a good woman. I'm a good woman. Be kind, I'm a good woman, you raised in the light, I feel like a fool, cause a game is-
0: Okay. Okay. All right. So I am here with my grandma Barbara. Uh and I'm really excited to record this. I've had this idea for a while, but never quite never quite got it together. <laughs> um and it's interesting because people who listen to the podcast no dad, because he's been on twice. Right, right. So this'll provide some interesting familial uh, ancestral context. My, my my son, the dad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um so we're sitting in Tucson right now, and why don't we start at the beginning? Uh where were you born? And were there any sort of unique or exceptional circumstances
2: of your birth or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was born in a a very small place in Vandale, Arkansas. Hmm. And my father was employed there by the Sears Sewing Machine Company. My father, my mother was a housewife. And um I was born, I think, at eight o'clock at night, if hmm. I remember right, and Doctor Love oh, really? was the, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Um The only other doctor love I knew was when I was in my 20s. I had a a doctor on Guam that Mm. was named Dr. I always wanted to ask him if his father or grandfather (laughs) brought me into this world. Anyway, yeah, that was the only thing I think. Um, The only other thing that I've been told about my birth is my older brother, who was 10 years older than I, uh, was very disappointed and wouldn't even look at me because I wasn't a boy. Mm. He already had a sister. He wanted a brother. That's about it.
0: (laughs) Um, And what was, where did you, did you guys live in Arkansas when you were growing up? Mm -hmm. Did you move? No, we moved rather
2: quickly. I think I was, I believe I've been told I was two years old, Hmm. although I must have been older than that because I can remember certain things about the trip from Arkansas to Mississippi where my... Uh, paternal grandmother lived, and we were going to live on one of, in one of her houses. She had a, a large farm in Mississippi, and I think probably, they were, um, I don't know, if they were built for, but they had been used for sharecropper houses, mm. in in that that part. Um, but I do, I remember, and it's possible that I've just remembered people telling me about right. this. But yes. I feel like it's a an, I memory, visually, mm-hmm. when we passed through Tupelo, Mississippi, I said, apparently, my first words, which were, pretty lights, <laughs> after Mama and Dada, I said, right. pretty lights, and I think that was an omen for my future, that I was going to go to the, the light, to the big city, mm. to live, live away from Arkansas and Mississippi cultures. So
0: Yeah, and that's, that was a big shift? Did you feel like, how did, I mean, what was that process like? Did you feel sort of like a black sheep of your family getting Mm -hmm. out? Like, do you consciously remember thinking I'd -hmm. like to go elsewhere or, Uh um, do something more? And this doesn't quite feel like where I'm meant to be.
2: I think that was probably pretty low key for most of my growing up years that 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 feeling or mm. that issue. I don't remember anything very conscious about it. Uh, I do remember feeling um, uh, different or uh, other hmm. during those years and I think that was uh, brought on by an event that happened right before my fourth birthday. My mother caught my cousin. James and I having sex play, mm. and down by the creek, and um, I, it was an event that um, that really damaged me mm. because I was in the in the throes of ecstasy with this sex play, and then all of a sudden my mother jerks me up and spanks me, and I was just devastated by that, and I remember that a. I think it was like a few days later, it was my fourth birthday. Mm. And she actually had a fourth birthday party for me. And I remember thinking, "What? how did this happen? I'm such a bad girl. How could I possibly deserve a birthday party? Um, So that that event, uh, I think, was related to feeling a lot of shame Mm. and comparing myself to other people. So that whole event really had a... A devastating effect on my personality I think I think I always felt like I had to do something to prove myself
0: maybe more than most kids would have well wow. and did you sort of even at that age did you know what you were doing at the time I mean like I'm I mean obviously you sort of were conscious but did you know that you, it was like a sexual thing specifically. I didn't know, no. and I had
2: no idea there was anything yeah. wrong with it, or yeah. that it, I didn't know what the word "sexual" was. Right. I just know that what he was doing to me felt really good, mm. and I was enjoying it immensely. Yeah. Until I got jerked up into reality and right. my mother's scowling face and yeah, and I just
0: felt like uh, I was I felt like I was hopeless. I was just totally ruined for life.
2: Mm. Um mm.
0: And I mean, it's interesting, too, because eventually you sort of went into that world of doing, you know, relationship or sexual therapy and stuff. Eventually, yeah. I know, that's amazing that, yeah.
2: that, that that's where that ended up. Yeah. That, although that was kind of a part, of, a fairly minor part of my work as a psychotherapist. Yeah. But it, it was a significant part in several ways. But it wasn't, when I think back on my years as a therapist, I don't, think very much about that particular thing it was right. um anyway yes that was that was an interesting evolving from
0: yeah
2: trauma to and and you know the um the shamans in uh, the old world tend to think of healing requires that the healer be wounded right and um so I, i've thought about that <laughs> having been a you know wounded myself so early that it helped me to be more compassionate and with people who were wounded um yeah yeah i guess it all starts pretty early in terms of the um patterns that are laid down early on in your life
0: right (laughs) yeah in astrology it's a similar concept there's an asteroid named after chiron the wounded healer so it's that same sort of concept that You know, once we're able to identify and heal our own wounds, that often we offer up that same, you know, healing mm -hmm. or medicine to others or something similar. Right. Right. Yeah. So, did you always have the idea that you wanted to be a psychotherapist? Did that? I think when I was in high school,
2: uh, I I was uh, interested in in going. I thought I would go in the direction of being a teacher Mm. because I thought that was. I was trying to think of something that would really make a difference to people, and I had read somewhere once that teachers had such a um important role in in our lives that mm. that if you could help one person in their early years, that would re- really have an effect on their mm. life. And I guess I identified with that as a person mm. who had um, gone the other way with it. Uh, so yeah that was that was my idea initially. And that didn't work out because I wasn't. Um, it wasn't easy for me to go to college. I I was shocked when my my mother uh, told me that they didn't have the money for me to go to college. And I was, it was really doubly shocked because she'd always made such an emphasis, put such an emphasis on education. Hmm. That I and I knew that I knew that they didn't have a lot of money, but I knew they had resources for money they owned a lot of land and had they they had ways that they so I'm not quite sure what was going on with my mother at the time I I tried to figure it out but I I went to work and a local uh, company that actually recruited me from high school Mm. Uh, it was kind of an amazing phenomenon uh, as a secretary to a probably the richest man in 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 the town and also maybe in the in this part of the state yeah uh, and he had um he had an airplane that we we flew from different places for his different offices, and I was entranced with flying, yeah, so when the opportunity came up right in in a very strange way, my mother had read an article in um the um, Memphis newspaper which she got. It was the closest, quote, big city newspaper. She was always a newspaper reader. Mm-hmm. And they had an ad, Braniff Airlines had an ad for stewardesses. So mm-hmm. that's how I got into flying. And so I just forgot the whole thing about going to college and getting yeah. being a teacher. All of that kind of went out the window because what I, what I thought of before that came up was I would save my money and then, Actually, go to college where I had a partial scholarship offered to me, mm. um, but that kind of disrupted that whole uh, dream or idea.
0: Yeah. Did your mother go to college? She did not. Do you think there was something about like, on the one hand, wanting you to go, but also feeling like I you don't know some separation?
2: Uh, yeah, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. I, I, I never could figure that out. Yeah. So, and I, I've done a lot of soul searching and. Uh, Having studied psychology as I did um, trying to figure out what was going on with my mother she was a very complicated person. she was very bright and um, and sort of her, her, sort of wasted her intelligence was sort of wasted she never had an opportunity to really e- use it mm-hmm. in any significant way except for raising her children which isn't to make that make light of that that right. was an important I think my my mother's intelligence was an important influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always trying very hard to please her because I still carry that I'm a bad girl. Mm-hmm. I've got to make up for that cross of sorts. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know. And I know that in in later years, after, after I went away to, to become a stewardess, I, I know I thought that she was living her life vicariously through me. Right. But why wouldn't that have been going? Because she was always, she sent me to a high school that was different from the local country school where I would normally go. Mm. She paid tuition for me to go to a a town mm-hmm. where I could take. She was very um, determined that I should have the opportunity to get the best education, and in particular, take foreign languages. Mm. For some reason, that appealed to her. Mm. And she never spoke anything herself other than English. But... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. My mother's relationship with me is still kind of a a, a muddle, a tangle. I don't really get all of it. It it, yeah. it shifted somewhere along the way um, to my being the mother, and I guess that's normal in in as you age. Um, but it shifted pretty early for us. Yeah. Uh,
0: Did you guys know. ever talk about that situation that happened when you were four? Never.
2: Hmm. I regret in some ways that I didn't, but no, I never did. I think I just tried to push it aside and yeah. do the best I could. Well, my mother was very controlling, too, even after I was married and had children. And so um, I think I was always kind of defending myself against right. that control. Yeah. So I probably didn't, I didn't, I wasn't very intimate with her.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it that phrase that I'm sure you've heard about, like that we live our parents' unlived lives.
2: Yes, I definitely had that feeling with my
0: mother. (laughs) Right. Yes. That's fascinating. So you became a stewardess. Yes. How was that? (laughs) That was (laughs) was great. It was great fun in those days.
2: It was a glamorous job. (laughs) Yeah. And And
0: when was this? Well, How old were you and what year? I was
2: 1955 Mm -hmm. and I was 19 when Mm -hmm. I started, 20 pretty quickly after that. And um, yeah, so I I was there for two and a half years till uh, 1957 mm.
0: when I married your grandfather. And that's how you met, right? Through that's that. how we met. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how did that how did that all work?
2: How did it happen? <laughs> yeah. Like, how did we meet? Yeah. Actually, we met through one of my fellow stewardesses. We were called stewardesses in those days, not flight attendants. Uh, okay, right. Much more glamorous. <laughs> Sounds better. Yeah. Um, she had dated my uh, my ex, mm. your, your grandfather, and um, he and his friend came to town, and she told me she was engaged to somebody else, and mm. so she, he asked if, if, it, if they could, she could give us fix him up, so to speak, he and his friend with some mm. other people that she knew, and she did, she called me and said, would you be interested in meeting this man? This man? Hmm. And do you have a roommate would be interested in meeting his friend? <laughs> so that's how we met.
0: Yeah, yeah. and yes. so you were still like 19 or very Oh, no, by that time ago. I was, this was in the last
2: year, I think, year. I was 21, I think, by the time we met. Mm. Yeah, 21. And then I was married when I was 23, year and a half after mm.
0: that we got married. Do you tell some story, I feel like, maybe this is, I'm making this up, but there was something I feel like that my dad used to say that you would say, like, if this didn't happen and that didn't happen, like that there were these weird sort of synchronistic events (laughs) that led to his birth. Yes, I think all the way back to, well, all
2: kinds of things before that too, but all the way back to my mother seeing that ad in the commercial appeal because I wasn't reading the newspaper. She would sometimes give me something to read. But I never would have seen that, and it, and it surprised me actually that she she showed it to me, because I thought was she trying to get rid of me? Right. What's going on here? Yeah, because I was still living at home at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that seemed like a very serendipitous kind of thing. Like what? What are the odds of? And for that to work out, because it, they fly girls. I have to call myself a girl at that time. Yeah, all the way all the way to Dallas from all over the mid south and. South and midwest uh to interview for for jobs hmm. and they don't hire very many of them, yeah, so I was amazed a couple of girls were on the flight with me from Tulsa, Oklahoma, to <laughs> Dallas, and I thought they were so pretty and so smart and cute and cool and you one of them got hired wow. a- and here I was, a little farm girl, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I was amazed, so that was the, I think that was interesting and it's, I still don 't know what they were looking for,
0: yeah but <laughs>
2: I know they didn't like anyone who was overweight, hmm. uh, or, or had that, or had that history of being overweight. Yeah, and you had to be able to have good enough vision. I always thought just good enough vision to get on the on the airplane, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> find the right plane to get on. Yeah. Uh, but that was another issue uh, that I that I thought was really weird. And then we went to get our eye test when we were uh, had been selected to, to go through the pro the training program.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I failed it immensely. My, I'm very nearsighted, mm-hmm. and I thought, "Oh, this is terrible." I was the first one to go from coming out, and I told the people um, at the desk that were getting us up to. I, I may have told you this story,
0: but I don't really remember it. I just re- yeah. I remember there was something about eyesight. That's <laughs> about it.
2: And so, um, while I, while everybody else, there was something like eight of us, I think, that were in the, that were hired for the mm-hmm. program. And when the rest of them had gone through, I went up to the desk and said, would you test me again? Because I have a, I'm a little um, blinded by the sun. It's so hot out. My, so it was really difficult for me to see until I get adjusted to the dark, mm-hmm. relatively darker room. And she said, oh, fine. In the meantime, I had memorized the eye chart upside down, <laughs> sideways, every which way.
0: Uh, that's amazing, right? Okay. So
2: that's how I got into that uh, field. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who's ever done that. I don't yeah. think... That, but it was it was something that just kind of occurred to me out of the blue that, mm-hmm. oh, here's a way to do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you met my grandfather. Did you guys plan... Was it very clear that you wanted to have children?
2: Uh, not at all. No, he yeah. wasn't the slightest bit interested in having children, mm. but... I was very interested. Hmm. I think, you know, part of it at that point is that you're just at the age that you're ready to think about children. And all my friends were having babies. Mm -hmm. And so it just seemed like the right thing to do, to have a baby. And, And also, I wasn't, I think I wasn't, I think I was disappointed in some ways. Not always. In some ways, our relationship was good. But I was disappointed in, oh, I don't know how to describe it exactly, Lack of consistent intimacy Mm. with my with your grandfather. Mm -hmm. He was one of those people that could be extremely present in the in the in the present in the moment, but then he could be gone the next minute, just like a hummingbird. Mm. And so it was kind of hard to know where where you stood with him in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I never really felt like I was. Fully known by him, or mm. or appreciated in the way I wanted to be appreciated, mm-hmm. which I'd like to think was healthy. But maybe I, I don't know. It's hard to go back and judge yourself. Yeah. All I know is, and I think the idea of having babies was um, part of not only you know what was what I expected and what was part of the culture at the time, but I think I wanted someone to love, right, and someone to love me. And I think children uh, held that out as a as a possibility and they were indeed I mean it was maybe too much so I don't know
0: (laughs) yeah and then I mean he was in the military air force air force right so you were traveling it sounds like we moved around a good bit um
2: from New Jersey to Alabama for a short time for uh, uh officers training school he was in there and then from New Jersey. He was, but well, in New Jersey, he was flying to Europe a lot, hmm. uh, and then we moved from New Jersey to Guam, where your My father was born, born. right? <laughs> right. And our, he already had an older brother who was born in New Jersey,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and then we came back to Washington D.C. and uh, where he was flying the vice president and oh, wow. uh, everyone down from that. Air Force Two, it's called. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we went to the Air Force Academy, where he was teaching, and where I finally started going back to school to get my college degree, mm. my bachelor's degree. After the boys were in kindergarten, and I felt like I could take the time to do that. Mm. And then we went from there to Texas for me to work on a, a, a graduate degree, mm. mostly for me. And he was there were all kinds of military bases in that area, so
0: hmm.
2: we went to San Antonio.
0: Was that a difficult decision for you to decide to go get that education, or
2: not at all? Had, I was yeah. ready,
0: and he was supportive. He was
2: very supportive. Yeah. Yes, he hmm. had worked on his his finishing his bachelor's degree, getting a master's degree, and eventually a PhD while we were married. Also, mm-hmm. so he was he was very supportive.
0: Yeah. And that was in for, you wanted, at that point it was psychotherapy, like you... Yes. Yeah. For some reason at that point, um, I think it
2: had to do probably after I was, maybe had about a year of undergraduate work and I had had a chance to experiment a little bit with other things that I thought I was interested in, history, mm-hmm. uh, uh, literature, English literature in particular, and, and psychology. And psychology seemed to be the best fit for me. Mm. Uh, It was, it seemed like just common sense. Yeah. So it was, um, I enjoyed the other two two subjects and I think, I guess my, I guess um, literature was probably my minor. I think you had a minor in those days. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they still do that
0: or not. Right. And what was it, was it still at that point that you were really interested in helping people? Were there other aspects of the psychology that? Well, there was, you could, you know, you could do social work, which
2: I actually interviewed once for social work and. More I found out about that that I didn't think that's what I wanted to do. yeah, so I, I stuck with psychology, and i I really thought that I could I could work as a psychotherapist, and I had that feeling, so yeah, that's where direction I went in.
0: Yeah, and did both of you, when we were just with my dad in Guatemala, which was something I didn't know, that you and my grandfather worked together for a while, like doing therapy in groups or something? we weren't together,
2: you mean we what do you mean we' uh living like, together,
0: or yeah, like that you were i guess my dad was saying that you both were doing some sort of like relational or sexual counseling uh and that you both were involved in that in a the practice together,
2: yes, yeah we, yeah, at one point we took um training in um sex therapy and education, which was really big in the seventies, hmm. and um Masters and Johnson came out with their studies right. at that time. And I did some training with them. Your grandfather didn't. I'm not quite sure yeah. he never went there. And we also did some training in Texas at Galveston, which was a big institute for training in sex therapy. Mm-hmm. And we worked with a psychiatrist um, who also was ahead of us in, in terms of training. Right. And so we were kind of on-the-job training with him. But we worked together uh, in that field not exclusively. We worked also with with regular uh, psychotherapy patients, but mm-hmm. run of the mill neurotic kind of patient. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, I'm not sure I answered your question. Yeah,
0: though. no. That yeah. I think he. I think my my dad has these memories of learning a lot about that. Work at a young age, sort of being... Yeah,
2: yeah, I don't know that he learned very much. I think it was more the group therapy yeah, that he perhaps. was involved in. So, yeah. yes, he'd yeah. hang around with the groups, and <laughs> I, you know, I didn't want him off. And I, I, at the time, probably didn't think it through well enough, but he was sitting in on some of the group therapy things, and yeah. probably way above his head, but he was um, very interested. And, um, yeah, that so that that, that was done... We had a, a rather large house in the sort of in the country outside San Antonio, and we did our workshops on the weekend and mm-hmm. uh, not sex therapy workshops. Those yep. were done in, in different setting, but mm. um, just regular therapy workshops. Uh, all kinds of all kinds of things: psychodrama, um, yoga. Um, it was kind of a healing. Um, Conglomerate of different things that we have. we worked with other people who were in different fields, yoga therapist and mm. uh, psychodrama therapist, and trying to think of what
0: else. Um, hmm, I think that's that's the main ones. So. And did your what kind of relationship did you have with your mother at this point? Was she kind of did she know about what you were doing? Or? <laughs> uh,
2: I I tried to explain. She would ask me, and I tried to explain mm-hmm. to her, and she would say things like. Why don't they just pray? Okay, I'll see if I can try to get that through. So no, she didn't really have it. She didn't really understand it. Yeah, I think she wanted to, but she didn't get it. Um, yeah. and-
0: well, because it seems quite progressive. I mean, I know eventually in the sixties and seventies. 70s- people became sort of progressive and there was a lot going on. In the 70s in particular, yeah, yeah. It does seem sort of... California style is yeah. what we used to call it. Right. I mean, and nowadays maybe even more common, but I sometimes think back and think like, wow, that was sort of... <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: We did a lot of um, passivity therapy too at that time. That was a big one. Mm. And transactional analysis, mm. uh, which is you know kind of taking... Freud's ideas and putting them more in everyday lingo and mm. working with different parts of the, the ego, the superego, and all of this in terms of things like the parent, adult, and child as opposed opposed to the, the id and the superego and the ego mm-hmm. uh, kind of conco- uh, triangle there. Right. Yeah. So, that, yeah, there was a lot going on in, the, in, the, in experimental, I would call it now, I think, mm. and... Um, yeah, it's interesting since after it's all said and done and I'm retired and look back and see different things about therapy, it doesn't seem to matter really. And I think some research supports this. It doesn't seem to really matter what you're doing. It's whether you believe in it and the patient believes in it mm-hmm. that right. you can have good results.
0: Even if it's praying. <laughs> Even if it's
2: praying, yeah. absolutely. Oh. absolutely.
0: Um, and so you also studied at the Jung Institute. Yes, right. I was I was
2: accepted, which was a big, I guess, a big hurdle. Could, it's worse than the, getting into the airlines, yeah. for sure. <laughs> they have this oh, oh, crazy... Yes, at the Jung Institute in Chicago. I was living in Chicago at the time, and I'd, I'd always been interested in Jung. And while I was working in San Antonio as a psychotherapist, I decided I read Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, <laughs> Jung's uh, biography. Mm-hmm autobiography and decided I wanted to look into that and so I was I had been to some of the workshops in Houston because at that time there were no Jungian analysts in, in San Antonio so I was about to decide to um, I wanted to go into the, the therapy the uh, analysis and I was about deciding to go to Houston to do that and a, another serendipitous occasion um, the Jungian therapists moved to San Antonio Mm-hmm. And so Harry Wilmer was his name, and he was he worked a lot with veterans. Mm-hmm. Dreamwork and um, what else was his? Uh, art therapy and dreamwork, I think, were his two main approaches. And he's since passed away. Um, but that all got me very interested in, in training at the Jung Institute. And when I got into Chicago, I continued working with a Jungian analyst. And worked with her for maybe, I want to say, six or eight months. Mm-hmm. And then she coached me a little bit about applying for training because I'd said then that if I wanted to look into it. And, and so I did and was accepted. And um, I was there for a total of about three and a half years. Mm-hmm. It usually takes a minimum of four years to get through. Mm-hmm. And I didn't finish it. I I left after three and a half years for several reasons. One is my present husband, Dennis, had been offered a job that he had always wanted, the job, his dream job, Mm. in Colorado. So um, I just didn't think he should turn that down, and I didn't want to be separated. I'd already been separated once with my leaving my practice in San Antonio to move to Chicago. We had... Uh, lived separately except for half the week. I I worked half the week in San Antonio and the other half I came to Chicago. Mm. Um, Anyway, I was... um, Because of that and because of the fact that things were getting a little sticky at the Jung Institute, several people, including my analyst, and... um, I don't know how to describe her exactly. But she was sort of the Doyon, D O Y E N E, how do you say that? Do you know? D- Doyon? Yeah, anyway, she was a um, big kahuna yeah. <laughs> with the, <laughs> with yeah. the Jungians. Yeah. And she had been uh, sued by, I think, two, one or two of her patients for mm. sexual sexual involvement, really, yeah. not just harassment. And so that was a big stink in the whole thing. And it, it sort of threw um, uh, into question my therapy, my analysis with her.
0: Right. Well, because she also came on to you, right? Well,
2: I guess so. I mean, <laughs> I was so naive. Yeah. I really didn't, you know, your your father and Dennis... Both saw it, but I just mm. thought she liked me and was friendly mm. with me. Mm. She was very friendly with me. Um, after we stopped therapy, she wanted, to, you know, to, to have me in her life, and, mm. and and we did. We became friends for a while, and so anyway, that aside from quote breaking up with her over her issues and mm. my issues about her, there were also other things about the institute that I had difficulty with. Mm. Uh, I probably two big issues were for with me one is that I had already at that time I'd already had i don't know fifteen or more fifteen sixteen seventeen something like that years of doing therapy with what I considered a union orientation
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um again oversimplifying yeah. it seemed to me that I was more that it was more of an art than a science
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that it had more to do with Having the ability or to just open yourself up and be present and with a person, and then then the the magic happens more than you making it. You just you're a witness to it rather than a um, right. a cause of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And with the Jungian Institute, as with all institutes, they wanted to make more of a science out of it. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to sort of reset my notions. About how to how to do everything, mm. and I had to study and go along with their guidelines, which were sometimes fit pretty well, sometimes didn't, and um, and also the I had such a notion of unions as being um, all knowing and all um, you know they just they were, I was almost like gods with, right. with unions. And so I began to see all these clay feet and uh, people that were um, teaching courses that didn't, they might as well have been speaking another language. And I knew enough about Jungian psychology to then know that they were just totally out of it. Yeah. Um, And so I was spending money toward learning something that I already knew a better way to do it than they were trying to teach. I was trying to fit into their mold and give up my mold. And then to have people trying to teach me things that that were, I, I just couldn't absorb. I couldn't make any sense out of it. Yeah. And it, I wasn't the only one. Uh, my classmates also, there were like six of us in that group hmm. t- in training. Um, so I wasn't the only one that had that sense. And also I, I kind of began to resent the financial aspects of it. I would probably have kept on trying to, because I was pretty close to finishing. I was basically... Uh, done, except for I had my cases approved and I had to present those cases and I had to write a dissertation. Those were the only I had all my classwork done and mm-hmm.
1: everything.
2: And I probably would have stayed with it, except that it became so complicated and mm-hmm. so f- so financially draining right. not only to have an analyst of my own, but a training analyst and fly back to Chicago right. um, frequently um, and to go to conferences that you had to pay your way to. And it began to seem a little bit like a, a pyramid scheme to me. Yeah, And I, so I be, at that point in life, I began to think, oh, you know, do I want to spend another $50,000 to finish this uh, minimum? It probably would have been more than that. Right. Or do I want to... It, I was at the point in my life in terms of my age that I was really ready to retire, that I took six months off, when I moved from Chicago to Colorado. And that was so wonderful, to have that freedom. Mm -hmm. um, I was in my early 60s, and to have that freedom in my life where I could do what I wanted to do, and the phone wasn't ringing on off hours with someone with a crisis. And uh, so it was just really, I did try to start a practice in Colorado and try to keep things going in in, um, Chicago. But I just didn't have my heart in it.
1: Yeah.
2: Both in terms of doing the things I needed to do to get more people, I had a small practice and probably would have gotten more as time went on. But um, I, I, I was just not with it in the same way that I had been before mm-hmm. because I'd I'd really enjoyed my work in Texas and in Chicago, and I did the people that I saw in Colorado were, were good people to work with. But I I just finally decided that. The, about this time, the issue with my now ex-analyst came out where she was right. basically, uh, her license was taken away. Yeah. And all of, all of that involved in terms of our relationship. I just felt like I just wanted out of the whole thing. And so I did. And I haven't regretted it. Yeah, I know. I think Rod regrets it. He wanted me to finish it. <laughs> Your father. Yeah.
0: Um, and but, so did you keep... Were you still, a, were you still like having a practice and being a therapist after that, or did I that, was for yeah. a
2: short period of time? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah so, I imagine that must have been extremely heartbreaking. It was disappointing for sure. Yeah, yeah. And,
2: and I felt particularly disappointed in my analyst. Yeah, I mean, the rest of it, I feel like you know that's probably normal when you over um, emphasize how wonderful someone is. You know, you're bound to see clay feet along the way if you have enough time around them. So that part, I think, and I think I just didn't really think through or really know how much money it was going to cost, mm-hmm. and how much money it was going to cost me through the rest of my life, basically, and yeah. even after I finished, yeah. to be a union analyst, to have a uh, obligation to be a part of the organization, and to, but it wouldn't have been that much. Most of the most of the money would have gone into finishing yeah. the um, the training. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was it was very disappointing, and I, I was I, I was more heartbroken, I think, about my analyst than anything about her. I didn't, I, I really was kind of blindfolded with that, blindsided with that. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew that she was, um, I knew that she was probably bisexual. She was married though. Most of the time, I was with her. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I had a much, I would say more minor experience when I was learning astrology, but the, this concept of putting these people up on pedestals or, Mm -hmm. or projecting like, well, I'm putting so much work into making sure that I'm being responsible and that I'm not, you know, projecting onto my clients and I'm self-aware and I'm in therapy and you sort of just assume everyone else is holding themselves to that. And then, you know, it, I mean, maybe not everyone, but I feel like a lot of people have experiences of realizing, Mm -hmm. you know, what's going on behind the scenes. And, you know, for, for me for a while, it started, it made me kind of question everything like myself and like, am I doing this? Like what, what is, how did I not notice? And it's it's it was sort of a, a mind fuck in a way. <laughs> it is, it yeah. is. And it's um it's
2: hard to sort it all out when you're right in the middle of such a muddle. Yeah. Um yeah, in terms of recognizing that I was a target, I I I I mean, I, I think she saw that I was very happily married and I don't think she wasn't overly pushy with me, I didn't think. Yeah but probably more so than than I realized, according to other people that saw what was going on. But yeah. you don't want to think that anyway, so yeah. you probably explain or justify actions in a different light.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, too, the whole therapy thing. I mean, I was thinking about this when you said, talking about the art versus the science of it. And, you know, it. on the one hand, I sort of... You know it's very difficult, I think, to conduct psychotherapy because, you know, at the end of the day, these these are just two humans, you know, Mm -hmm. with their own histories Uh, and their own projections uh, and their own feelings and their own thoughts. And Uh um, like on the one hand, I think it's vital that we have these sort of rules and regulations that we follow, but also Uh I think, you know, I wonder if our denial of the humanity.
2: Well, yeah, and it should come up. That right. that should be processed. You know, the whole idea of transference and right. countertransference, right. Uh, and that is one thing that that the Jung Institute really focuses on is processing mm. that that your relationship with the therapist. Right, and uh, that was, and I already knew that and did that, but that really in, reinforced my beliefs about that. that. Was an important thing for me to get out of that training, right? right. Yeah, because that's it's just it's so fraught, <laughs> right? Uh, that. Um, and difficult it's difficult yeah. to really do with a
0: yeah
2: open heart and open mind
0: yeah yeah and also like the sort of natural like eros that arrive uh, or course. you know in especially power relationships like that like teacher student and yes you know counselor. the
2: person in power just takes advantage of that many times
0: right or often get involved gets involved in that practice mm-hmm. because of that right that they have that um proclivity toward there's some book uh power in the helping professions yes i'm sure they would deal with yeah, that the, yes. that was like that that type of personality actually gets involved in therapy often because they feel so you know aligned with being put on that pedestal and right. having the power over the other person it's hard
2: power is a difficult thing
0: yeah it's
2: difficult to uh know how to, how to handle it it's
0: yeah. It's dynamite. Yeah, and like pervasive and everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: yes, yeah. it is. It's really uh, dangerous.
0: Yeah, or can be. I can think be. It's, yeah. If it's well, not,
2: I think more often it's dangerous. Some people handle it well. Yeah. They're very careful with the dynamite. But right, right. Uh, Someone who's conscious and, and and really motivated not to get that right. uh, uh, upset or offset by it. But yeah, more often than not, it's. Uh, tricky,
0: tricky business. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your experience and perspective with my dad and my dad coming out and how you kind of process that. And, Mm. um, it's interesting, not just in that respect, but hearing him tell stories about you in general, where that you were like this very (laughs) um, open-minded and supportive and sort of non-judgmental parent. And he tells this hilarious story about when he accidentally ate way too many, uh, psychedelic mushrooms (laughs) and came home and saw his skin peeling off his face. And, uh, just like totally was losing his mind and that you came home and he told you what happened. And and he was like, I think she was probably a little high. And she just put me (laughs) in front of the TV (laughs) and said, Oh, just like, you know, wait it out. And and I think with that and other things that you were maybe unlike other, you know, more controlling or judgmental
2: yeah. mothers
0: that he yeah. experienced.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was always oh, felt so attached to your father. He was he was my my youngest, mm-hmm. and also uh, I think easiest to relate to because my older son had, bless his heart, he had he had the. Impossible job of accepting another baby into his yeah. kingdom. Yeah. He was king, and he just didn't like that. Most baby, most firstborns don't want the second one. Yeah, and I think he tried to kill him several times.
0: <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> I, to caught
2: this. A, I caught I yeah. caught on pretty quickly and <laughs> monitored that pretty closely. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was. I think there was always um, a different kind of. Pull. I mean, I always felt pull toward my first child too. Was, mm-hmm. you know, I know that he was suffering from that yeah. issue, and so I, I think I was. I think we managed pretty well, but Rod was easier because he didn't have that. He had, uh, you know, he was just open and, you know, you could just love him and, um, unconditionally. Yeah. Whereas it was a little more work. Greg was a little more, um, but n- nonetheless loving and caring. It's just very different.
0: Yeah. And do you think some of your experiences with your mother growing up, I mean, obviously, probably informed your own decisions around what you didn't want to do? Yes, I think so. Of course, I think we all try to do just the opposite of yeah. our mothers.
2: Yeah. And definitely, I think I felt that she was always controlling and critical. Oh my God, I was, she was so critical. Mm-hmm. I just felt like sometimes I couldn't do anything right as a teenager, especially. Um, so, yes, I think that. Uh, I think I suspected your father was leaning toward being gay. Yeah, I was going to ask pretty was early was on, yeah. so I didn't want to step on that or mm. crush that inclination in him. If that's the way it turned out, what led you to? Oh, I don't know. It's hard to say exactly. His just his his way. Yeah, uh, you know he would he used to. He had a, he had liked to. He had a little something called, uh, what were they called? Uh, Dammit Dolls. Mm. And he he loved to play with those little Dammit Dolls. And he he always liked to have things contained. He would have little boxes he would carry around under his arm. And he had a troll uh, house that he'd carry under the other arm. And he was, he had his, he was always, I think I always knew that he was going to be in theater too because he always mm. made his own theater mm. Um so, I, you know, I, I just, I always loved him so dearly. It didn't really, I mean, I would have been with him if he'd kill someone, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And the same with Greg. It's just that it was, Greg was more traditionally oriented. Yeah. And um, I, I just didn't know which way Rod was going to go. And, you know, sometimes he had a girlfriend, sometimes he had a boyfriend, and a girlfriend and a boyfriend. <laughs> so, I thought, well, he's trying to decide, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. But he had some really nice friends of both sexes, and yeah, I didn't find it at all difficult to do that. Yeah.
0: Did you worry? I mean, I know, too, like, because he sort of was just coming of age and was living in New York at the beginning of yes. the AIDS crisis, and that must have been...
2: I was very worried at That but yeah. with the AIDS crisis. Oh, that was just, just devastating. I was so grateful when he... I had met your mother, and... Um, I was just so grateful that he was married. I thought that would get him out of that world. Mm -hmm. And I can remember going... The first time I went to New York after they were married, they were in an apartment, a nice little apartment that was very cozy. Mm -hmm. And this was before you were born. And I remember that she cooked dinner. um, I remember what she made. Chili of some kind and Mm -hmm. cornbread. And so in a glass of wine. So when I came in for the flight, this this was almost already I didn't know the cooking. And your father was coming home. And I just broke into tears mm. of gratitude that he was in this kind of environment instead of risking his life at every turn.
1: Yeah.
2: So that was uh that was a big relief. And little did I know that was gonna turn sour so quickly, but in, even then I was glad he was out of that. For a period of time, I didn't Um, I didn't worry.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when I was talking to him, you know, it's anytime I say anything about to anybody, really, that my father is gay, they always sort of want to understand the trajectory in a sense. Yeah, how did that happen? Right, did he know that? And it's such a unique story, I think. I think either normally someone just knows they're gay and they've always been gay and they're, you know, always just been with men or they've been totally closeted and always with women and then eventually this comes out and I think with him it, it always felt far more fluid and mm. um and I think also like he tells this story about when he was younger that you know more than being with a woman because he was ashamed to be with a man that it was like you know he what he really wanted was an intimate connection with someone and couldn't really find that with young men in their 20s understandably right um and didn't think he could have both he didn't think he could have the sort of sexual connection he wanted and the emotional connection and so he he settled and and when i heard that it was like what that's so common i mean i did that i settled as well right i think we all do in the initial yeah when we're young we think we can't you know can't have what you want really you can
2: only have some
0: of what you want you can't
2: have all of it
0: yeah and did you feel like you were equally as um, like it was equally as open ended as far as where he might end up was there some skepticism that like me i'm really mm-hmm. glad he's here in this apartment but i'm not sure this is going to at that point i i
2: i i didn't really think very much beyond that i was mm-hmm. just so grateful that he was out of the out of the gay life right, and out of some danger. I just thought it was a horribly dangerous place. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
2: so it wasn't until I spent more time around your mother that I realized, um, I don't know if this is going to work. This yeah. is, my mother said something that, that was just <laughs> so perfect. My mother could really get these little jewels out once in a while. I'll tell you a couple of them. But this one was, she said, when she met her, she said... I don't think she's going to be any help to Rod. <laughs> I thought that summed it up so perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and to the point that I thought he was—he was killing himself for being there. Yeah. I can remember thinking that it, I, I've lost him. He's absolutely gone over somewhere that's not him anymore. Yeah. When it's toward the end of their relationship, yeah. it's really grim. Yeah. After that's you sort of- were born, actually.
0: Right. Right. That's uh-huh. sort of the story both of them tell: is that he basically went crazy and uh-huh. just was so disassociated from himself yeah. and forgetting things and breaking down and yeah, um, yeah, it's really hard. So, were you when he finally decided to leave that marriage? Were you? More relieved than oh, afraid at that moment. <laughs>
2: tremendously relieved. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I and I
0: guess a lot of the sort of also danger around AIDS and all of that had calmed down a bit to where yes, that wasn't yes, as big of that, a. Yes. Yes. That was. That was definitely.
2: My only regret was I. I thought about you and Mika and how. How that was going to work out. I thought how these okay. work, but I was yeah. I was so grateful that he was. He was getting. I didn't think he could live. I didn't think he could survive if he didn't. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's sounds intense. Um, I want to talk a little bit before we wrap up about the cabin and Colorado, okay. because I think it's an interesting, I look at my family for the most part, and I see people living in cities and, mm-hmm. and very, you know, in these sort of highly populated areas and not so much into, you know, the great outdoors and, um, a lack of internet connection. And I feel like I sort of have that in a way that's unique
2: an inclination toward that
0: yes yes yeah uh-huh. um and I'm curious what you know how that developed for you and what was your it's always I also it's funny to me that I think you guys were um told that the land was available the year I was born 78 oh I thought it was 88 there was something, 88 yeah I'm yeah. Sorry,
2: 88, yes. <laughs> yeah 88 yes yeah. that's this the year we bought the land
0: yeah yeah and was that, were you with Dennis at that point? I was, You yes. were, okay. Uh,
2: yeah, we, we were married in 78.
0: Okay. And you guys decided you wanted to...
2: Well, we uh, when we first got together, I was, I had lived in Colorado mm-hmm. when the boys were little and your grandfather was at the Air Force Academy. Right. And I was going to school at the University of Colorado for my bachelor's degree. And uh, I loved Colorado. Anytime we got out in the mountains, uh, just my dream all the time was to be to have a, a cabin in the mountains so that we could ski and uh just enjoy nature go hiking and you know there are lakes out there and fishing and whatever you know just yeah. to be the great outdoors uh and that never never materialized with with your grandfather mm-hmm. um, but when Dennis and I got together the every t- chance i got when i lived in texas mm-hmm. even before Dennis and i got together colorado was my destination for vacation yeah and after Dennis and I got together, I took him there for the first time. And after that, that became his destination. He was probably even more crazy about Colorado than I was. And um, so we just, we just had a great time every time we went. And it wasn't long after that that we started thinking about looking for land. We drove all over uh, Colorado, all over New Mexico, Uh, Where else? Um, I don't think we ever got into Utah, but we were going to go there next, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And we really couldn't find anything unless it was, uh, you couldn't buy a regular, like an acre of land or whatever to build a house Mm -hmm. with any kind of guarantee of what's going to happen around you. Right. Um, there were so many zoning laws that were, just didn't work for for buying land out in nowhere,
1: yeah.
2: and it didn't even occur to me. This, my your grandfather and I had invested in this property, in this uh, development, in the early '70s when it was first bought and first developed. And it didn't even occur to me to look there because...
0: Yeah, right. That was the confusion. That's why I asked if you were a Dennis because I feel like the whole mm-hmm. the, yeah. your connection to that land started prior. It started
2: yeah. way before that. Yeah. Uh, but we, uh, when we looked at it, it was... Um, when, when your grandfather and I were there, it, they sold out a lot of the, the prime lots pretty quickly, including mm-hmm. the lot that we in, ended up getting. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. lot came back on the market after Dennis and I were together it came back on the market as a result of a lawsuit oh, okay. the owner of the of the lot and and something like five lots he bought a total of five or six lots and his idea was to fence in the whole lot a number of lots six lots with the fence so that that was his property mm-hmm. but that was totally against the the laws of the homeowners association so right. they, they went to court and got the land back from him mm-hmm. and then that's when the General partner of the development sent me a letter, as well as all the other limited partners we were called mm-hmm. in the development, saying that this land had come back on the market. So I went out immediately <laughs> and immediately bought it. <laughs> yeah. Dennis didn't even see it till, but I knew what he was looking for yeah. um, because we had been looking all over the state. We looked everywhere for land and um, and New Mexico. I'm in um, yeah New Mexico and Colorado. Mm-hmm. We almost bought a place in Taos. We came very close. But anyway, that didn't work out. And so that's how we got there. Just from the love of the beauty of Colorado, it Mm -hmm. was just... It always felt like I was home when I was in Colorado.
0: Mm. And you guys built that cabin from the ground up. We did. Well, you know, we
2: hired people to build it. Right, right. Yeah, uh, people who... So many people out there were building um, kit houses. Right. And... um, and some of them are really beautiful and huge, and we wanted a little, relatively little as, um, as compared to most of the cabins. It, there's so many vari- so much variation in the size of the cabins, but ours was in the, uh, probably about the middle range of, mm-hmm. of the sizes. That's but we hired these these two um, builders who would, we gave them our plans, but they modified them quite a lot, and... Mm-hmm. They never really wrote anything down or drew anything. they just would scratch their beards and <laughs> cut a log and it would fit perfectly. <laughs> it, it was an amazing we We weren't around them as much as Dennis's father was who mm-hmm. was it was a wonderful happening that that was yeah. very serendipitous too
1: yeah.
2: not only did they loan us the um, construction loan Dennis's parents at a much lower rate interest rates were very high at that time and but he also retired at that time and mm-hmm. came out he was an electrical contractor so he came out and and worked along with the builders he did a lot of work on the cabin mm. and um he and the electrical people there got got into it a bit but other than that he, <laughs> so that was a really nice thing to have that made the cabin really dear to your to Dennis's father right and um and that was a big part of the enjoyment of the cabin was how much he enjoyed it after we got it built
0: yeah yeah it's it's interesting how i mean i think i probably felt similarly going to summer camp but there's something about i mean as, even as a kid going out there and not being connected to anything and you know i sometimes wonder how much better off society would be if we mm-hmm. were forced to <laughs> and right and that's probably why we avoid the quiet And the disconnection, I think, because... You'd
2: like it too much.
0: (laughs) Well, I was going to say, because being quiet like that forces you to kind of actually think or feel in a way that, you know, workaholism or constant busyness or commuting does not. Yeah, that was on purpose for us. We didn't even get a telephone for years.
2: It was only when Dennis's father was staying there a lot and he started having heart issues. So we didn't want him to be stranded
1: mm-hmm.
2: there. But, you know, our television, we didn't get that for years. I got that only out of um, self-defense because Dennis wanted to go out there all the time, every possible yeah. opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: like, yeah, yeah. I love the stories of, like, when you guys used to go out there in the winter and snowmobiling in the grocery. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, the first time we were out, we didn't even have a snowmobile. We had a little wagon that we bought at Walmart, and we'd put mm-hmm. our our groceries in there. And,
1: yeah.
2: and the, the cans of tomato would roll off and the fall off into the <laughs> in the snow. <laughs> and we were in snowshoes, although we didn't even have snowshoes at first.
3: Yeah,
2: and we had Sasha who would get out there and, and loved it. Yeah. Our Samoyed. Yeah, it was a great time. It was it was fun. And then the, the snowmobile made it easier, of course, when we got that to get right. in. Yeah. It was a nice it was a good good run, twenty-six years.
0: Yeah, and for I mean, I'm super grateful for it for many reasons, but I feel like I my life sort of followed a similar trajectory of going to Colorado just because you guys were there. I think I don't think there was any other reason I would have gotten to uh-huh. that state. And I always thought like I feel like either I'm meant to end up here or if I move, you know, off one of these coasts that that's where I, I want to go. And Uh yeah, I was sort of one of the, in, you guys had to let go of the cabin this past summer because it's very difficult to live at that altitude and it's a lot of work. And, um, but I feel sort of grateful. It seems like the storyline continues in a way because it, you know, at least within our family, I feel like, it sort of brought me there and I would very much like to build something.
2: Yes, yes. And
0: oddly very close to, to Gunnison. Yes, two hours <laughs> yeah. away from the Gabon. I know yeah. that's amazing that you found yeah. A, yeah. a place you love so much. Yeah. Um, I assume like letting go of that must have, I mean not must have, I know it was extremely difficult mm-hmm. um, and I'm sort of curious to hear how, you know, like what that represented too for you as far as getting older and what that mm-hmm. sort of, you know, even before we die, let's say that there is just so much grief to be processed in the yes. letting go. And yes,
2: the whole idea of letting go has been as as we age and have difficulties of one kind or another, physically, emotionally, whatever, mm-hmm. um, the letting go process. Dennis in particular has has had a little more difficulty, I think, because he's had to let go more in stages. Letting go of his motorcycle riding Uh, was really a big one. And Mm -hmm. he sold. He had three, you know, until the last couple of years.
1: Yeah.
2: And letting go of the the big motorcycle and then the smaller one here and then the one at the cabin. Uh, And then recently he let go of his motorcycle equipment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Years before that, we let go of our diving and snorkeling equipment with our wetsuits and snorkels and so as you age there's just different stages of letting go and it's like a little death each time you're giving up something you loved i mean we loved getting in those wetsuits and being in the water in hawaii it was Mm -hmm. just wonderful it's like another world you know with that you're enjoying and the same with motorcycling. We rode motorcycles. I, I was hanging on the back, not with my own motorcycle, but all over Texas and Colorado and not too much here. Um, this traffic is so difficult to get out of the city. But uh, that was a big one for both of us, mostly for him. Uh, and letting go of the cabin was the biggest letting go, I think. Yeah, it's like a little death. Um, but it helped in some odd way that we had to we were, we've been trying to do it for several years and yeah. Dennis said a couple of years ago, he said, we, we just couldn't do it. We couldn't, we talked to a realtor but we didn't actually engage her. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: and he said, life will decide for us and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. We get to the point that I need oxygen. He has difficulty with his stamina and um, strength and it just it's just, not we can't do it anymore. It's a living organism Right. that has to be cared yeah. for and it's, uh also the, the 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 relative remoteness of it becomes mm-hmm. a problem as you get older. Yeah. How difficult it is to get groceries, to go to doctors, to right. the whole business. Uh so yeah, it's it's really hard. I don't think I don't think anyone can do it until they have to. Right. Um, a lot of people out there, our friends have said, They're carrying me out, you know, feet first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they don't have to we, we had thought that would be the case with us. We thought someone in the family would take it over, but you know our family's scattered to Switzerland, the Amsterdam, yeah. uh, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't want to. They don't want to take over the cabin. Yeah. I mean, they everybody would love to come and visit there still. Yeah, but uh, nobody was ready to step up and yeah. manage it. Even I was close. You were close. You were our best bet for a <laughs> yeah. while. Yes.
0: Yeah, and I think it was more of like a timing issue, maybe, than anything. Too. It was just yeah. Didn't quite. Yeah, I'm
2: not sure. Even if you'd done it that year, I'm not sure you
0: would have done it. Yeah.
2: After you met Chris. Yeah. And...
0: Yeah, I sometimes wondered too, because you had those. I think there were a couple of them heart attacks, relatively. Yeah.
2: Well. Uh, yeah. All at once, kind of. Yeah. Within. Thirty minutes of each other. Yeah, yeah. It's really the doctor doesn't want me to call it a heart attack. Mm. It's a cardiac arrest. Mm, Okay. I don't have heart disease. Yeah. I had a a stress related cardiac arrest. Yeah. uh, Which was brought on by extreme stress.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, And they call it takosuba, which was named after um, a Japanese doctor who called Mm. it takosuba because it was the shape of a oyster. Oyster pot. uh, where they catch—I don't know—something some, about the oysters. I think, I think mm. the traps or something that they use. I think it's oysters. Um, if it, someone in Japanese would know what takasubo means yeah. literally, but <laughs> uh, and right. they, you know, I had there was a big conference with all these cardiologists. My cardiologist said there were four of them from all over the Southwest trying to decide because it was an unusual thing mm. at that time. That yeah. was what, seven years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago, something like that. And um, since then, I've heard of several people. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Debbie Reynolds died of that same Mm -hmm. thing. And I had the cardiac arrest in the emergency room. So if you're going to have one, that's a good place to have it. Right. Um, um, What was I going to say about that?
0: I was going to say, like, I I wondered if that sort of near-death experience too mm. in a way I don't know like I think about the heart we were just talking about this last night like going through extremely difficult situations in your life where you sort of face what you think you can't face and yes. it sort of makes you it might, it might help then later on to be like well if I got through that or could yeah, survive that, of, that uh, yeah.
2: your, your pain can be uh, yeah. instructive in that, or whatever kind of pain Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose so I think that because it was such an unusual cardiac arrest, I mean, I was talking one minute and I was gone the next. I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was in some kind of distress, pain, but it wasn't really like I was. I just didn't know what it was.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when I went to the emergency room,
1: yeah.
2: Um, so, I mean, I, I think I may have wondered if I was about to have a heart attack, but when it, when I, by the time I got there, I had relaxed some, and I was talking to the nurse. We were teasing each other about. Something I forgot. Know what it was? All of a sudden, I'm just gone. Uh-huh. And when I came back, I re- I found out that um, poor Dennis was you know over in the corner with a blanket around him. It looked like he was gonna pass out. But um, so it it was. It's only in reflecting back yeah. that I think about about death a little uh-huh. more. Um, and in some ways, it made me even more comfortable uh-huh. with death. Right. So, um, and I've never been particularly one who dreaded it. I, I would, you know, I, I would hope to die a certain kind of death. I suppose most people would. that mm-hmm. That isn't so awful, but we don't know. How, but, yeah, so I guess, I guess in some ways that made, it's the inevitability of death that makes it possible to let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to accept the inevitability, because I think a lot of us just don't don't want to think it applies to us. Somehow we're going to get away with it. Right. (laughs) They're going to find some way to let me live forever.
0: And also when you think about that, who wants to live forever? Yeah, right. Uh, Crazy people. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, well, and it also seems like, I mean, you've lived quite a full... Life and it doesn 't seem like the kind of life you look back on and think, "Oh, I wish I'd done that and that and that it 's like you really did a lot of those I did a lot, yes yeah. I
2: did a lot a lot of experiences, different locations, different cultures, different people
1: yeah
2: uh, I, I think I had a wonderful life actually yeah. i, I re- the thing yeah. I regret the most, and I think we all get into what do I regret as you age the thing I regret the most is that i wasn't kinder to my mother. Mm. I mean, I wasn't terribly unkind to her, but I could have been more. You know, she was such a um, uh, adversary. Mm -hmm. I always felt like she was my adversary. Yeah. So, and it's really hard to be as kind as you need to be when your adversary needs kindness. Right. So, and and in general, I wish I'm sometimes things I've done things that weren't. not horrible things, but still, I could have been kinder in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Wish I'd been more thoughtful and careful about others' feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I, uh, I I feel like life is. I don't know. I'm sort of a, a soft determinist, I guess. I feel like a lot of it's determined, mm-hmm. and it feels like there's, um, you know, it, as the character in Lawrence of Arabia said, "It was written." Uh, yeah, I really feel like a lot of it's written. I think you have some choices along the way. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things I... Uh, when I started writing my dissertation for the Jung Institute, um, I was going to write about uh, the role of will in individuation. Mm. How much will... How much do we really... Does our will matter mm. in terms of how we turn out? Um it would be a very difficult subject the more I think yeah. about it. But I like the idea of it. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, uh, and I think you also had have had, I mean, maybe not, you know, religiously, but some sort of spiritual groundedness. I'm just now remembering that story you told about something about some link visitation from... I have had a couple of visitations from yeah. another realm, so let's put it
2: that way. <laughs> yeah. I don't know... Yes, I have. I've had a couple of pretty profound um, situations. Did you want me to talk about that? Maybe one of them. One of them? Yeah. Okay. The, one that's, the first one was in, when I lived in Texas and I was in the process of separating from your grandfather. We were, you know, kind of together, not together, together, not together. And we'd gone to a party. He, he, came, he came to the party. Separately for mm. me, because we were living in two different places, and most of the time. And um, while I was at the party, I hadn't even I had a glass of wine in my hand, but I hadn't even had anything to drink. Uh, and I just suddenly felt like I was very ill. Mm. Felt like I had I was having a really bad flu or something that was just wow. It just struck me like lightning almost. Mm. And I told my host that I was going to have to go home. I didn't feel feel well at all, and he was there. And he said, "I'll drive you home." So we left my car there, hmm. went home, and he came in and went, went to bed with me. And he was asleep in a, a nanosecond, which I think men can go to sleep.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> hit the pillow and they're gone. Um, and I was—I wasn't reading, but I was just. Maybe I did start reading. I don't remember. I know I wasn't asleep. I don't usually go to sleep within half an hour usually the time I get to bed. Uh, yeah. Most times, sometimes once in a while if I'm really tired. But I felt really bad still. I didn't quite know what to do for it. Uh, I may have taken an aspirin or something. And um, all of a sudden there was a presence in the room. I had um, a patio, a little, uh, not a patio, but a little, um, what, a little uh, deck. Mm. outside my bedroom and some of those Japanese type shades that roll down that have the, the slats in them. Yeah. And there's light shining through the slats slightly from an outside light. And it's as if this person came in on those, on those light beams.
1: Mm.
2: It just sort of slid through the cracks. Wow. <laughs> and it was there in the room and um, it was a Native American. I had this poster that reminded me so much of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got that in Santa Fe. It's in the La Fonda Hotel, the original. Where it had um, the noise makers, whatever mm. they're called, the Native American. Yeah. Um, it was sort of you know how they. Uh, there was a, I can't remember, I can't remember the name of them. Anyway, he was making that noise and dancing mm. around like this, like the buffalo dance kind mm. of thing, and um, I, I was just so flabbergasted at having this presence in the room that I shook your... I said, wake up, wake up, there's somebody in the room. And as I did that, the person disappeared. Yeah, And um, I asked him, my, my husband asked him if he saw anything or heard anything. He said, well, as I, as you were waking me up it sounded like somebody was rustling papers in the trash can. Mm. And that's kind of what it sounded like with this with yeah. noise... The things he was dancing with, yeah, and um, and at that moment, whatever it was that had me in its grips, totally disappeared. Yeah, so there you have my visit.
0: <laughs> Do you think that those sorts of experience sort of also maybe grounded you or helped? In the whole process of letting go, as you got older, the sort of idea that oh, I think so, yes, like what's the point of trying to control and be neurotic and and manage if ultimately, yeah, yeah, I I think so. I think it it helped
2: me feel and see a larger picture of life.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I think we don't know very much about where we fit in, yeah, uh, and and how how it how it ends, if there is any ending I sort of doubt there's an ending I think there may be some kind of continuation right. of life, I don't think the personality continues exactly but uh, yes yeah. um, I don't know, I've tried to think about whether this kind of experience is related to stress also of some kind although I don't think I was feeling terribly stressed at that time it was certainly a transition period, yeah, but uh, yes, I think that that I think that's definitely related to my general uh, take right. on life and
0: do you think, going back to the beginning, that comment around you know in order to help you have this initial wounding, can you sort of see in your life's trajectory how your own specific wounding sort of came about as a healing to yourself or to others? Uh,
2: yes, I think I think that helps with empathy.
3: Mm.
2: And uh, I think empathy is such an important part of helping others. If you can't put yourself in their shoes, so to speak, to some extent, you can't. I don't think you can. Can be that helpful. For one thing, you. Um, I think I, from my 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 type of brand or whatever you want to call it, mm. of therapy, had to do more with getting out of the way,
1: yeah,
2: than than being a guide or, a guide. Uh, there was some guiding. There's some nudging, but it, it, advice giving. No, and you know, and, and attempts to steer someone is, it's not. Uh, it's just going to get both of you in trouble. Yeah, because it's, it's playing the yes but game and right and and I, I used to people that would press me for my opinion or <laughs> or advice. I used to tell them, if I gave you advice and it worked out, then I would have to take the credit. <laughs> and, and if it didn't work out, I would have to take the credit. Too. <laughs> <laughs> and that was not going to work very well. Yeah, yeah. But,
0: Yeah. I, I, I wonder too, even if when you were young and you didn't really know what you got in trouble for, like, it's interesting to track back. Oh, I did
2: know what, uh, oh, I knew that it
0: was, yeah, I'm sorry. Or the, or not that it, or, or just the sexual component of it. Like I just, it's interesting to, to track from you to my dad, to me specifically, the sort of interest in eliminating shame, especially around Uh sexuality or just being yourself, you know? Um, right. it's an, it's interesting to sort of see that the the familiar, narrative. Yeah. Uh, narrative. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Okay. It's a good place to stop. Thank you okay. for doing this. Thank this you. great. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. If you would like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz In exchange for your donation to help me keep this show going and alive and build a community both remotely and in person. Plus get access to lots of perks like a Discord server and a book club and workshops and playlists and stickers and all sorts of amazing things. Patreon is where to do that. I am going to play you out today with uh, Virginia in the Rain. By the Dave Matthews Band. Uh, This is a song that I actually included on a recent playlist I released for my patrons called Nostalgia, which included both old songs and new songs, both of which make me feel nostalgic in some manner. Um, But this song really reminds me of, I guess, the feeling of what it was like to go to my grandparents' cabin in Colorado. And I'm so grateful for having that experience and for feeling so free. I think going there and going to summer camp when I was young really kind of told me that maybe there was another way to live that wasn't in a city that wasn't punching a clock. Um, and that wasn't hanging around people that didn't make any sense to me. And I felt such a sense of connection to nature. And I would often describe the feeling as a utopia of some kind because it just felt so different than the normal reality that I was raised in. And I think that sort of I don't know, like put a pin in something for me, um, that I wasn't totally conscious of at the time, but which subconsciously was, uh, impregnated. Is that the word I'm looking for? Um, subconsciously just shoved into my, uh, subconscious, I guess, um, for me to access later. And it was really, really helpful during my during those really tough years when I went through a dark night of the soul to, to remember even just what it felt like to feel free and felt like to belong and to feel happy and to feel out in nature. And even though I didn't know what it would look like or what shape it would take, I just pulled from those feelings and kind of followed the feeling and the energy of it. And that brought me so many gifts. So thank you for being here with me as always. Sending love to you all. Enjoy the song and I will catch you next time.